This is the story of a kid who was scared of a graveyard. It's also the story of the founder of a major American institution, a cultural leader who changed a whole profession, established a globally famous urban landmark, and introduced a new way of celebrating a holiday. It has elements of the rags-to-riches stories that made Horatio Alger famous, but it also throws a few curves, connecting post-Civil War Tennessee to the experience of refugees to booming electric 20th century New York. Our story begins more than 6,000 miles away. Most of Central Europe was ruled as it had been in the Middle Ages by princes and aristocrats. America was a democracy. Great Britain and France had evolved their own sorts of democracies. But Bavaria in Germany was still a cluster of kingdoms. The people there wanted democracy too, or some sort of freedom. But when they stood up for it, things began to get bad. Idealism gave way to a series of violent events that became known as the Revolutions of 1848. All over Europe, the people rose up from Italy to Austria to Germany. But in spite of some early gains that offered reason to hope, the princes and kings in power brutally suppressed the populist revolts. Millions of Germans fled for their lives. The largest number came to America. One was a Jewish woman from Bavaria named Bertha Levy. She had a prosperous uncle in the Deep South, in Natchez, Mississippi, and settled there for a time. Meanwhile, another Bavarian had already come to America, perhaps under less desperate circumstances. Julius Oakes was from the town of Furth, near Nuremberg, not far from Bertha's home. In 1845, with things uncertain at home, he took a ship to New York. He first went south, attempting to make his way as a merchant in the town of Natchez. The two Bavarians probably met there, attracted by much they had in common. They both spoke German, of course, but also English and French, and they shared their Jewish faith. Julius failed as a merchant and got in some trouble with locals. He gravitated a bit to the north, to Tennessee. In Nashville, he and Bertha married in 1855. They lived in Knoxville soon after that. Knoxville seemed a place with a future. It was an old town by American standards, suddenly growing very rapidly thanks to railroad development. More than many southern cities, it was a wide-open town. No family or business or class controlled it. Its original status as a state capital was already half-forgotten, but the arrival of the railroad in 1855 suggested other destinies in regional iron, coal, marble, and lumber and attracted hundreds of immigrants from Europe, not just refugees from the German political catastrophes, but survivors of the horrific Irish famine, as well as dozens of Swiss fleeing religious oppression at home. War had compelled the Bavarian refugees to come to America, and war met them here. The slavery issue divided the country and split Tennessee into several factions. Even the immigrant groups were divided on the issue, Knoxville no longer seemed a safe place to start a career or a family. The Oakses went to the burgeoning river city of Cincinnati, famous for its large German community. There they had the first of several children. Adolf was born in 1858. 
despite their shared backgrounds as Jewish Bavarian refugees who were still just getting used to America, Julius and Bertha had opposite views on the war. Somehow, with small children to raise, they stayed married. Their children grew up in a politically divided household. They learned the virtue of fairness. They remembered the promising smaller city on the Tennessee River, where they'd already had connections, and returned as soon as it seemed safe. With the war still underway, but his term in the army ended, Julius Oakes took his family south to Knoxville in early 1864. There, wartime shortages had become a way of life, and he thought the people in the war-crippled town might be ready for a good store. He rented a space right on the main street, Gay Street, just north of Cumberland, one of the city's busiest blocks, and specialized as a clothier advertising citizens and military clothing. He prospered and built a home for his family on the steep hillside just north of town on Sharps Ridge. He gave it the grandly German-sounding name of Oxenburg. After three or four years of prosperity, though, Ox's business base was crumbling. He had set up a business based on wartime shortages. By 1867, supplies were plenty and prices were rapidly falling. Many shopkeepers went out of business. In early 1868, Julius Ox, 41 years old and the father of six, declared bankruptcy. He abandoned Oxenburg, his hillside palace, probably before it was fully completed, moved his family to a place he could afford. It was a shotgun shack downtown. Water Street was well-named. It ran along the lowest part of downtown, near First Creek, which often flooded. Sometimes big boats could float up Water Street from the river. To help their struggling family, even the children went to work. The firstborn, Adolf, was ten. He found work as a newspaper carrier, working for papers associated with Parson Brownlow, the fierce Unionist editor who was then the governor of Tennessee. His strong-armed leadership had already forced the state back into the Union before any other Confederate state. Brownlow was on Adolph Ox's paper route. People made fun of Adolph's last name because it sounded like Ox, the beast of burden. They thought it funny to call him Muley, Muley Ox. He seemed to have accepted it with good humor. Young Muley was a curious, ambitious kid, trying different things. He worked for a time in a drugstore. He served as an usher in the new Staub's Opera House. He attended local schools, including the university's preparatory program, up on the hill on the west side of town, but ultimately found it frustrating. He was a quick study and had already learned a lot. He wanted to work. He gravitated back to newspapers, and at age 14 presented himself at the Chronicle office to ask the editor, Captain William Rule, how he might help. Rule gave him a bottom-rung job as a printer's devil. It was an ancient term for an apprentice printer. The job also entailed a lot of sweeping up at the shop, running errands to the telegraph office, cleaning the ink off the press rollers, and keeping the machinery oiled. It was a morning paper, so they put it together at night. Adolf's shift was over at 11.30 p.m., but despite his youth, he often didn't get to leave until later. There were no child labor laws in 1872. The paper had to get out every day, no matter what. 
The editor-in-charge, Captain William Rule, had learned journalism working for Parson Brownlow before the war. He wanted to create a great objective newspaper in Knoxville and would spend the rest of his long life on that mission. He had already seen and done a lot in his life, in both war and peace, but he was genuinely surprised when the dark-eyed teenager came to his office at 11.30, the end of his shift, and asked if he could work a bit longer. Rule was puzzled but impressed with the kid's energy, work ethic, and obvious intelligence. He let Adolf help lay out advertising, proof stories, sometimes even rewrite copy. Printing technology was changing all the time, and it was good to have a teenage kid who learned fast and could work hard at whatever hour. In a tough business, you can't turn down such competent help. Ox, no longer Muley, became known as Oxy. Eventually, Rule noticed that Oxy often left when an older friend got off his shift at 2 a.m., and they'd walk out into the dark streets together. Sometimes he stayed all night and left at dawn, hours after his own shift was over. It took the editor a while to figure out what was up. Then he understood. It wasn't just that Knoxville was very dangerous late at night, though it often was. Saloon shootings were becoming common. The answer had to do with something much quieter and more obscure, something the teenager had to deal with on the way home. For him, walking out of the newspaper office onto Market Square presented him with a dilemma Captain Rule had not thought about. On the hillside right in between Market Square and his family's humble home on Water Street was Knoxville's oldest graveyard. It had been closed to new burials since before Adolph was born. It was a melancholy, disorderly place, especially after the war. Often overgrown, its limestone slabs broken or tilting askew. The church had been devastated during the war, closed down during martial law, even used as a stable. In 1870, many of the stones marked graves of early pioneers whose families had died off or no longer lived in Knoxville. But the old churchyard was full of stories, the sorts of stories that boys tell. Tales of old William Blunt, the scheming governor and senator impeached for treason. And Hugh Lawson White, the senator they called the Skeleton, who once ran for president and whose minister had died on the way to deliver the graveside service. And there were stories of the dozens who had died of the fever back in 1838, the deadly epidemic the older people didn't like to talk about. They were all buried close together there, under stones worn or broken or tilting, some of them with puzzling inscriptions. Hardest to ignore was the tallest monument in the old graveyard. It was then its newest grave, a rare exception allowed after the old graveyard was closed to new burials. The gray broken obelisk stood among the trees, right in the middle. It was the gravestone of Abner Baker, the Confederate soldier. Just after the war, he came downtown one day, had a personal argument with a former Unionist on the courthouse lawn, and shot him to death. No one knows what they said. Abner Baker, who was arrested, but pulled out of jail that night and lynched for the murder, was hanged from a tree nearby. The tombstone was still inscribed. His death was an honor to himself and an everlasting disgrace to his enemies. 
Abner Baker was someone people talked about for years after the war. Some claimed he wasn't quite dead. The people who lived in shacks down by the river claimed that on some moonlit nights, they could still see Mr. Abner hanging from his tree. When he started walking home from the Chronicle office at midnight, Oxy was 14 and mature beyond his years in his work ethic and understanding of the world around him. Of course, in some ways, he was still a kid. He heard the stories all the other boys told. The kids claimed the dead emerged from their graves at midnight to roam these streets they once knew well. And his midnight walk home took him near where Abner Baker still lay, if he still lay there. And no matter which way he walked home, out of the corner of his eye, Oxy could see Abner's distinctive obelisk, broken at the top. In the wee hours, working hard at the newspaper shop on Market Square by a lantern light, and the hum and throb of machinery among other men seemed cheerful, preferable to the silence of dark streets around an old graveyard. He went to work as a reporter for another Knoxville paper, the Tribune. By the time he was 19, he thought he'd like to try running a paper himself. A couple of his Knoxville friends heard about some turbulence downriver in Chattanooga, newspapers in trouble that might need some help. They had some money. Oxy didn't, but the investors knew he was a young man with potential who understood how newspapers worked. They brought him along to be sure it succeeded. One plan didn't work out. But while he was down there, Ox heard about a failing paper called the Chattanooga Times. He was 20 now and had earned enough to buy half interest in it. Using everything he'd learned in his nocturnal crash course in Knoxville, he set about to build it up. Ox's Chattanooga Times was such a success that he hired several members of his family from Knoxville to come down and help with the reborn newspaper. His 52-year-old father, Julius, had announced in 1878 that he would run for another term as Justice of the Peace. By 1880, when his brother graduated from UT, the whole Ox family moved to Chattanooga. There would be leaders in the newspaper industry there for more than a century. It might have been enough for a young man who grew up in poverty to run a newspaper in a respectable mid-sized city. But in 1896, when he was 38, Adolph Ox heard of another failing newspaper, coincidentally called The Times. This one was up north, in New York. It was a big city paper with a circulation of only 9,000, one of four daily papers in the city, and the least popular. Ox went to Manhattan with a letter of introduction from his old boss, William Rule, their respected editor and former mayor back in Knoxville. He bought the Times for $75,000 in 1896 and took just a few years to make it something great. As rapidly as he had in Chattanooga, Ox reinvented a newspaper, gave it a new look, a new emphasis, a new perspective. He added a book review section and a magazine published every Sunday a new thing for an American newspaper. He also gave it a new motto, all the news that's fit to print. He said he borrowed the idea from his cousins, the Blofelds, who had a cigar store in Knoxville. All the cigars fit to smoke. The bold motto stood out in the days of sensationalist newspapers, an indication that the times would have higher standards. Ox ran no gossip, no fiction, no biased accounts, or partisan tax just the news that was fit to print. And he established a headquarters in a big building at Manhattan's old Long Acre Square on 42nd Street. 
he renamed it Times Square. To celebrate it and to promote his newspaper, Ox started a New Year's Day celebration there. First with fireworks, then with an electrical spectacle, the drop of an enormous sphere on a rooftop. Ox started one of the most durable holiday traditions in American history. He returned to Knoxville occasionally to give a luncheon talk or two. When old William Rule died in 1928 at the age of 89, Ox missed his funeral, but came by a few weeks later to visit his grave in Old Gray Cemetery. Newspaper photographers met him to try to get his picture there. He declined, joking, or maybe he was joking, that it was bad luck to get your photograph taken in a cemetery. For the second half of his long life, Adolph Fox was the publisher of the New York Times. He was a hands-on publisher at work every day and liked to keep an eye on things. He was known to startle the rank-and-file workers in the press room or the advertising department or the circulation desk with observations about how things might be run more efficiently. Publishers aren't supposed to know about all these things. When asked, he would explain that he learned how a newspaper runs long ago in Knoxville. He would mention that when he was just a kid working late in a newspaper office, he learned the whole business top to bottom because he dreaded walking by a particular graveyard at midnight. <laughs>